It's something for nothing, the Rush Fancast. Steve and Jerry back with you. Jerry, I have a question for you. Okay, what is it? How can anyone be enlightened? Oh, man. Truth is, after all, so poorly lit, Jerry. Oh, that's true. I thought you were actually asking me, like, <laughs> if I had to sit under a Bodai tree for a while or something. No, no. I just I figured I'd throw a Rush question at you and see if you had an answer. Uh, the answer is I, I'm slicing, yeah. You can find us on Twitter at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are at The Rushcast. Email Jerry, TheRushcast at gmail.com. He loves your emails. The bass intro. We did turn the page. Yes, great bass in that song. Absolutely, absolutely. So, Jerry, I've got a, a Twitter poll for you. Okay. This is exciting. I haven't had a Twitter poll in a while. All right. We had Richard Houghton on. I remember. A few weeks ago, author of Rush, The Day I Was There. And I decided to ask the Rush Twitterverse how many times they were there. Oh. So how many times did they see Rush? Okay. The first choice was zero to 10 times. Mm-hmm. Choice two, 11 to 20 times. Okay. Choice three, 21 to 30 times. And then choice four was more than 30 times. How about that? What do you think? How many answers did you get? I got... 632 votes. <laughs> there probably weren't any write-ins, right? Because it just takes care of all the options. Yeah, more than 30 is, you know, if you saw them 162 uh, times, then you saw them more than 30 times. That's more than 30, I think. Yeah. I think it is. Um, I'm going to go with 21 to 30. No. No. Believe it or not, it was 0 to 10 times. Oh. 44% of respondents said 0 to 10 30% 11 to 20, and 13% 21 to 30, mm. which was a tie with the fourth choice. More than 30 times also came in at 13%. Oh, I bet that has something to do with uh, a lot of people who listen to us or follow us on Twitter from the UK. That's true. And also, it's hard to see a band more than 30 times. That's, that's a lot. That is a lot. I mean, you and I are big fans. We haven't seen them 30 times. That's true. That is true. We came close, but right. But 30's a lot. 30's a lot. Yeah, that's a little excessive. <laughs> well, I don't think it's excessive. I would have loved to have seen them 60 times. I don't think it's excessive either. It's a little costly. It's a little costly. So anyway, that's the Twitter poll for today. Jerry, you got an email for us. I do. This is about our interview with Brian Hyatt. Oh, great. Brian Hyatt, yes. And this is from Todd from Ontario. He says, hi, guys. I discovered your very excellent show in the past few weeks and have devoured most of them. Rush and Neil in particular changed my life profoundly and forever when I was hit out of the blue by a Rush lightning bolt a couple of months prior to my 16th birthday. The reason for my reaching out was to thank everyone involved in today's excellent show with Brian Hyatt. That would be, I guess, the three of us. <laughs> you, me, and Brian. Your interview made me aware of Brian's wonderful and incredibly important tribute article, and when I read it, it finally and mercifully put to rest some of the painful questions and truths many of us devoted fans have daily pondered since the terrible time of Neil's passing. Thanks again, men. Keep up the great work. My heartfelt continued condolences to Neil's family, friends, and crew, and of course, his soul brothers, Dirk and Lurkst. Neil remains alive and well in our hearts, just as his vast work and words will forever reside in mine. A boy like me couldn't have had a better inspiration. Be well and warmest regards, Todd. Todd, thanks so much for that email. It was great. Yeah. We got a lot of great feedback on our interview with Brian. and We did. Mostly that's because of Brian. 
Oh, yeah. We didn't do anything. We just listened to them. Right. I mean, because if we were going to get great feedback about us, we'd get it every week. Well, we do get great <laughs> feedback, but not that kind of feedback. Not that kind of feedback. That's true. I also wanted to mention Brian posted a new article, an interview with Getty Lee, which was fantastic a few he, weeks ago. He did? I didn't see that. Yeah. It's called Getty Lee on the Genius of Neil Peart. You have to read it. It's fantastic. Cool. I'll look it up. It's available on rollingstone.com. We'll tweet it out so Rush fans can see it. Cool. And Jer, one more thing before we get into our interview. We have to give a shout out to another podcast. We do. We do. It's called the Retro Zest Podcast. Oh, yes. Hosted by Curtis. And I listened to this podcast a few weeks ago, and the guest we're going to have today on our podcast was a guest on this podcast. Mm -hmm. And she was so fantastic, I said, we got to get her on. She's great. Yeah. So thanks to Curtis for having our guest on first and showing us what a great guest she is. And he also featured us on his podcast, Jar. Did you see this? I did. You, yeah, you showed me. It was his top classic rock podcast episode. I know. And he picked us number two. Number two. That's great. It is great. Uh, right above us was Dave on Dave. Is that what it was? Not Dave on Dave. <laughs> That's a whole different podcast. (laughs) (laughs) What is it called? Dave for Dave? Dave versus Dave? It's called Dave and Dave. Dave and Dave Unchained. Dave and Dave Unchained. It's it's a Van Halen podcast. It's a Van Halen podcast. And I haven't listened, honestly, I haven't listened to it, but I'm sure it's terrific. If Curtis thinks it's great. Yeah. It's got to be great. I can't even believe we made it in the top five. Thanks a lot. Number three was The Kiss Room, which I also haven't heard. Cheap Talk, a Cheap Trick podcast was number four. Oh, that might be interesting. Yeah. And Zilch, a podcast full of monkeys, was number five. A monkeys podcast. Monkeys podcast. Did you just say a podcast full of monkeys? Right. Zilch, a podcast full of monkeys. Okay. I like that name. For a second there, I thought maybe it was a podcast about monkeys. I had no idea what it had to do with music. So anyway, Retro Zest had our next guest on the podcast. She's lead singer of the Rush tribute band, The Spirit of Rush, and author of a new book, Jar of Poetry, dedicated to Neil Peart. Yeah. The Winter Garden. Vicki Flyer Hudson, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Thanks, Steve and Jerry. Great to be here. We really appreciate you joining us. We always ask our guests, starting out, what is your Rush origin story, Vicki? When did you first hear Rush and how did you become a fan? Well, I was 14 years old and living in Los Angeles and I was at a friend's house and, you know, people were kind of scattered in different rooms, listening to music and watching TV. And I was just going to the kitchen for a snack and I heard something incredible coming out of the bedroom of this friend's house. And I heard the phrase science like nature must also be tame. And I just literally came to a stop in my tracks and I said, what? is this song? And the guy said, this is Natural Science by the band Rush. I said, wow, can I borrow that cassette? He said, sure. And I never gave it back. (laughs) 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 I think I still have it to this day. And uh, that guy's probably mad at me. But uh, yeah, and that that was really it for me. I mean, listening to uh, the rest of the Permanent Waves album and then just discovering this sonic connection was just instantaneous. And Well, as they say, the rest is history. Here I am so many years later. Now, in your book, 
the the final story of the book is about the day that you got to meet Rush backstage at a concert. It's a great story. Could you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah. So it's one of those stories that uh, I still think about the miraculousness of it and wonder how on earth this happened. But back in 2013, I had what I would describe as an incredible stroke of Rush luck. Uh, I had a client... Uh, so I'm a consultant, so I, I talk a lot with clients on the phone for an hour or so. And I was speaking with this client, and he was just asking me how I was doing. And I said, oh, not pretty good, just playing a lot of music. And he's like, oh, that's so great. I said, man, my cousin, who was also my best friend, is a cello player. And uh, it's such a great thing to play music as a hobby. And I said, oh, does, does he play in an orchestra? And the guy was like, no, he has like a jazz improv camp for kids and he went on tour with rush last year and you know they have like a string ensemble but anyway and the guy starts going on to the next subject and i was like you know almost fell out of my chair and i was like wait a second is it possible (laughs) that after a year that i've been working with you that you don't know about me and rush and then this poor guy i treated him to like a 20 minute speech about my connection with rush and how I wasn't in the spirit of Rush yet, but I was in a a band that was playing a lot of Rush covers, and I just went on and on, and this guy was very patient, and he said, oh, wow, in all the right places, but he eventually uh, said, well, let me connect you with Cousin Jacob, and that was Jacob Sakelli from the Clockwork Angels String Ensemble. Wow. So he connected us by email, and I wrote to Jacob, and he just could not have been nicer. I had a lot of questions for him about what it was like playing in big arenas, and what it was like playing with Rush and who arranged the Clockwork Angels string ensemble music and all of that. And he answered all those questions. And then there came that fork in the road where he said something like, if if I can do anything for you, you know, and any friend of my cousin is a friend of mine. And I'm thinking, okay, (laughs) what do I do? How far can I push this, right? (laughs) Without, you know, but at my age, my philosophy was you got to, you got to try to make your dreams come true and you'll never do that unless you ask. So I said, well, it would be really a dream if I could, you know, meet uh, Getty and Alex, Alex in particular, because as a guitar player, he's my musical hero of all time. And so the guy said, no, I'll try to make that happen. So he actually arranged some backstage passes for us just to have dinner with him. And he said, I'll work on the meet and greet, but I honestly don't know if I can make that happen because it depends on the schedule. Well, in an insane coincidence, I had entered the meet and greet contest like six months earlier before I even knew this guy existed. And about a week before the show, I got an email from Showtech that I'd won. Wow. That's amazing. And I wrote Jacob and I said, you won't believe this. And he said, well, it must be fate. So go ahead and accept the prize and we can meet after that. (laughs) So I go to the concert and uh, had the meet and greet with Getty and Alex. And it was just an amazing experience. I was able to give a letter to Alex that I had written about how just his creativity inspired me so much that no one ever had to push me to practice the guitar. And so I gave him the letter. He seemed very touched by it. And we were the last people in the line uh, to meet them. So he went off and put the letter in his pocket. And I figure he read it, threw it out, and went to do the show. Well, on January 7th of 2020, I received a package. And when I opened it up, I almost fell on the floor. Um, it was a Clockwork Angels tour book autographed by all three of the guys. And inside of it was my letter to Alex. That's crazy. And it had been mailed to me by Showtech with a note that said, Hi, Vicky, I found this in an old box of tour stuff. 
And what we figure happened is Alex must have given the letter with a signed tour book from the guys to a staffer, and somehow it never got mailed until seven years later when it arrived on my doorstep the day Neil died, just when I needed it most. Right. That's crazy. That is crazy. I mean, you know, it says so much about uh, the Rush organization, right? How many years ago? Seven years? Sitting around in a box, somebody finds it, and most people would have just thrown it away, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the fact that they, yeah, they took the time to mail it to me. And now, of course, I didn't know that Neil had passed away that right. day because it wasn't until three days later that we found out. But when I looked back on it and I thought, my gosh, how on earth? <laughs> just, right. Yeah, amazing. It is amazing. I wonder, wonder how many people have stories like that where they just have stuff, you know, randomly come to them. Yeah. From years in the past, it must, it must have been amazing to get that. It really was. I'll never forget it as long as I live. And it helped me to kind of feel this connection with them, you know, after I found out about Neil three days later. Now, at the time this happened, you were already working on this book of poetry. Am I correct? Yeah. So the, the book actually came about, I guess, in 2019. I've been writing poetry since the age of seven, roughly. And I've always loved the writing process. and. Uh, so some of the poems had been written years ago, and, and I had just been slowly compiling them in 2019 with the intent of creating a second book uh, when Neil died. And suddenly the book became <laughs> 10 times more important to me because I needed a way to process some of that grief. And then, of course, the pandemic hit. And so, yeah, going through that process of writing and editing and working on a cover, it, it helped me cope with these things. A lot of the poems in the book are inspired by Neil, correct? Yeah, a good, good number of them, uh, either from a travel perspective. So that's something that Neil and I share is a love of adventure travel. I've, I've been traveling the world since 1996, I think, was my first trip to Asia. And yeah, I think feeling inspired by Neil, but also knowing that people were out there suffering the loss of him. When I finished the book, I realized that it had another purpose besides just helping me with my grief. It could help others. And I've since mailed copies to people who've expressed, you know, a lot of sadness over losing Neil. And now we have the anniversary that came around and kind of reminded us all over again about how, mm. how tragic it was. So the book became my gift that I could offer to them. And overall, how would you say, I, kinda, I think I kind of know the answer to this question, but Rush in general must have been a huge inspiration since your first day of fandom, right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. Uh, when, when Spirit of Rush did a couple of tribute shows for Neil after he died, somebody wrote a note that we read on stage, and I feel like it kind of sums up the kind of inspiration that Rush has given me. It said, Neil, your spirit lives on in every kid who heard you play and picked up a pair of sticks or a notebook and pencil. You will never die because you will play through their hands forever. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that over the years, that's what Neil and Rush have helped me to become as a writer. You know, that there was always something new to learn about. So a song like Superconductor, you know, I remember hearing that for the first time. I go, well, what is a superconductor? And then I would go and look that up at the library. And so there was this continuous learning that came out of being a Rush fan. And that helped me to become a better writer. It gave me more topics for inspiration. And then, of course, just listening to their music. I mean, every time I hear the song Mission, I feel so uplifted. I need to write something, you know. Right. And it's always interesting 
when you look at the progression of Rush as a band, just the different things they were trying, right? They were, they were so heavy, and then they were so keyboardy, and then they were, you know, the more 90s stuff, and then they went back to the heavy. Like, as a writer, that's inspirational. Like, you don't have to be pigeonholed. You can follow your muse wherever you like. 100%. And, and I'm one of those Rush fans that loves their entire catalog. I don't really have like an era that I'm attached to. I love all of it from A to Z. And so depending on how the mood strikes me, I can put on something like Anthem when I want to feel uh, that sense of power or powerfulness. And that can be inspiring. And, and then I can put on a song like Mission and feel a completely different type of feeling. And I think also listening to how Rush has approached songwriting helped me as a writer as well. Because just listening to Neil, you know, talk about how he approached lyrics, kind of locking himself away, and then he would have this collaborative effort with the other two. I feel that way about the writing process, that I have to kind of lock myself in a room to write. But in the end, it's meant to be shared. And there was a term I learned somewhere in a class somewhere years ago called the dialogic imagination. And it basically means that any piece of art, a song or a text, has a life that's created by the, the writer or the musician. But once that gets released into the hands of others and the eyes of others, it becomes something else. And it starts a dialogue, a new dialogue with that person. And then that person might go and have a dialogue with someone else about that same text and it becomes a new life. And so I think, you know, now that Rush is not touring anymore, they are no more as a band, but look how all of it lives on. And I kind of hope my writing to spawn those dialogues with with others and rush fans in particular well the book is fantastic vicky and we thought it might be cool for jerry and i to pick a couple of poems that we like and then you can tell us about them what do you think ah, perfect jerry why don't you start um well the first one i picked is early on in the book um appropriately enough entitled grief and i just want to read the first couple of lines because it's it has some very beautiful imagery in the middle of it it says Grief has its own time, like an ancient river or grandfather's pocket clock sitting on my bookshelf, secondhand still until tick-tock. Now, it's something that, that Neil touched upon, I think, probably a lot in Vapor Trails, obviously about grief. So what, how does this poem relate to all of our feelings of grief about Neil? Yeah. So this poem was actually written half before Neil died and half after. I have a little notebook where I just jot down ideas that come to me, and, and I mostly write from images in my mind. So that's how I do the, the poetry process is I simply write what I see. And we have this little pocket clock that my husband's grandfather gave to him that's sitting on our bookshelf, and it hasn't run for years. But it's a reminder of who that man was. And so that, that's kind of the image that I started with. And you'll probably notice that, you know, uh, like an ancient river is, is a line from Vapor Trails, mm -hmm. right? So hope is like an ancient river. The time is now again. So those were kind of the images that I started with. But of course, after Neil died, it took on, again, a whole new life. And the premise is that grief has its own timeline. And it's often interdependent of the one that's going on in your daily life. It's like a parallel world. And just when we think that maybe we're over it or we want to be over it, it comes back. And sometimes it comes back in a whisper and sometimes it comes back in a heavy flood. And I think that Neil's anniversary maybe brought up 
some of that. And that, that's kind of how I think the poem is really tying to right now. I, I've, I've shared the poem and the book with some folks who have been grieving the anniversary of his death. And they said it helped them because it kind of gave this feeling that you just have to allow it to be what it is. It has its own time. You can't shortcut it. And one day the timeline just sort of runs its course. And not that you ever uh, stop grieving the person or that you forget them, but time softens it and you, you kind of wake up one day and you're finding joy again. And that's sort of what the end of the, you know, the very last line in the softened light of the healing sun, you feel like drumming just for fun rather than the drums of a, a, dir a funeral dirge. And that was one of the most challenging things about Neil's death for me was how difficult it was to listen to Rush songs for a while. And I know some people had the opposite reaction. You know, they just listened to nothing but Rush. But for me, I struggled to listen to the songs for a little while. And it was hard because my biggest source of comfort was gone. And I wondered if I'd ever hear the songs the same way again. But then one day I just sort of woke up and I put on mission and it gave me joy again. That's my favorite Rush song of all time. And that joy was back, but it had to happen in its own time. And I think yeah. that's what the poem is about. Yeah. It's, it's always fascinating to me that things that will remind you of someone, it could be anything that it could be the smallest gift you've ever gotten, or it could be a, a, a catalog of amazing songs. You know what I mean? I mean, grief is that, is that personal that it could be a coin that your dad gave you or, you know, I don't know, an app, a, a show in front of 50,000 people. Yeah. And I think to that point, when we are given these little reminders of grief, it tends to trigger other losses we've had in the past. So, you know, when you, uh, a death anniversary comes or you're grieving someone, it tends to remind you of those you have lost before. And I think the pandemic makes that doubly <laughs> yeah. poignant because we've lost so much. And so, yeah, in, in some ways, the book was my grieving process, not just for Neil, but for everything that we've all lost. And then this dialogic imagination, this desire to help other people through poetry. Because I, I heard a quote recently that uh, Jack Cornfield said, poetry is the music of language. Oh, that's interesting. That's a good one. I like that. Yeah. And I thought, what a great connection between, yeah. you know, this sense of... Uh, yeah, making music and making poetry. Yeah. My first choice, Vicki, is on the next page, uh, short stories for Neil Peart. And I love these because it just brings the image of Neil back for me reading mm. these. And if, if you don't mind, I'd like to read a couple of them. They're real short. Sure. Uh, the first one is called Dedicated, Physical Focus, Burning Stare, Impish Smile, Stick in the Air. I love that one. <laughs> this one's called The Songs Now. Crackle with life, breathing new air. Now I remember you are still there. It's beautiful. Thank you. And one more. One third to rush. One third up in the sky. The other two thirds smile and cry. Wow. I love hearing you read them. It's, it, <laughs> it's giving a new life. I, I mean, yeah, just hearing it in your voice as opposed to mine is, is kind of that dialogic imagination. It's giving, mm -hmm. giving new life to the, to the pieces. 
Well, Steve is probably available for audiobook. <laughs> I was going to say, I think I, I hear the audiobook version of this in my future. <laughs> but I just picture Neil, I, I can see Neil in my mind's eye when I read these. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's a, another quote uh, by Victor Wooten, the bassist. He said, all music that has ever played is still playing. And that was kind of the image I was working with for these short pieces is that I like to believe that when someone's gone, that uh, there's a continuation there. There's a continuity. And I could see Neil and, you know, tossing that stick in the air mm-hmm. and sort of breathing new life into these songs as I was listening to them and that the songs would continue on and have this whole new life. And so that, yeah, that's, that's some of the imagery I was working with for those. And those are a lot of fun to write because you don't have to, you know, sometimes writing a poem can be a challenge, thinking of just the right words, just the right ending. But those short pieces, you can really just take something, a kernel of something that you, you love, an image you love, and just right there in, in those short lines, capture the spirit of it. Yeah. Have you ever seen Neil drop a stick when he threw it in the air? I don't think I have. No. <laughs> <laughs> he always caught the stick. I, I think he did, though, a few times. I don't think, I, I don't think every time we saw him, he did. No, no, but, I've never seen him do it, but I mean, he had to, right? Had to. Have, you think after all, all those shows, but right. <laughs> I've, I've never seen it happen. So <laughs> I mean, the, the cheer always went up so hard when we he caught that stick. It's amazing. Uh, the next poem I have is called The Winter Garden, and it begins, I have a dream of a winter garden where he lived forever, crackling the sticks and rolling the echoes, the quiet adventure of icy blue. And I, I like the fact that it's called the winter garden because I'm assuming the garden being a reference to the Rush song. But the winter garden, right? It's, it's currently not growing. It's currently under snow. Can you tell us a little bit about that imagery? Yeah. So that's, of course, the, the title of the book. And it comes from the song Presto. So I had a dream of a winter garden and, of course, referencing also the garden. and. Again, because I tend to write in images, uh, right after Neil died, I, I knew I had to write something about it because the emotion was just there and it, it needed to go somewhere. And the image I had was this winter garden that is frozen and icy and, and nothing is growing. But at the same time, there's also kind of a beauty to it, you know, like he wrote about in, in the song Presto. Uh, silver, blue, and frozen silence. I always love that line in the song because it's so it's such powerful imagery. And this is the place you sit in grief when you're shocked, you know. And in, in the poem, I, I think I mentioned the line, shocked into silence. And that's, I think, how we felt. I was with my band the day that I found out about Neil, and it was literally, we were shocked into silence. And so the imagery is that I was working with was sitting in that winter garden and everything is, is so quiet and frozen, but that eventually, you know, over time, the ice starts to melt. And underneath that is sort of this lushness that was always there. It was just hidden by the grief and, and everything that we were going through. But as the ice starts to melt, things start to, to grow and open up again. And you realize that, you know, the garden's still alive just like Neil's spirit is still alive and, and living through his music and his writing. And that's why I loved what that fan wrote about your spirit lives on in every kid who ever heard you play or picked up a pen. 
Yeah. Yeah. And just from a larger philosophical standpoint, you know, a lot of plants in the garden need the winter. They need to, to go to sleep for a while in order to be reborn. And yeah. so, uh, you know, when it comes to these trials and tribulations in our own lives, that's what kind of happens to us too. We have to deal with it in a certain way in order to get through the coldness and through the winter and come out the other side of, I don't know, a better person. That's actually really beautiful. Yeah. And as, as Vicky alluded to, Neil is going to be reborn in the playing of other drummers down the road. Yeah, I know. Yeah, absolutely. There was a sense too of imagery around it's difficult to breathe in the winter garden because when it's really, really cold, you know, sometimes you have a hard time breathing and the air is coming out all misty and, you know, it can be hard to breathe. But that when the ice melts, you start to be able to breathe in again and you can kind of breathe in some of those rhythms and let them heal you. And I love the image of, of that, that, you know, breathing in his rhythms allowed me to I don't know, get the benefit of, of that and the healing of that. Because initially the rhythms are more like a funeral dirge, like I mentioned in the other poem. You yeah. know, you, this is an image that's often associated with grieving uh, around the world. Different cultures use drums as a way for, for grieving as part of their ceremonies. But eventually the drumming and the rhythm becomes something that you can feel in the heart again and, and it feels like a, a healing process. And I think that's what happened for me. And I think so many other fans. And You know, one of the gifts that I feel I had and privileges that I had was in the process of writing this book and exploring the grief process, a lot of Rush fans connected with me and said, you know, I feel stupid because I feel so bad about somebody I never met. And I had the opportunity to say, no, it makes complete sense. Yeah. And that you are not alone. And, you know, that that was a, a gift for me to be able to help others. And we all feel the same way, right, Jar? Oh, yeah. There's definitely, uh, you know, strangers. They're not strangers, (laughs) at least not to us. I know they, especially with Rush, you know, that we've tried many times this podcast to figure out why there's this crazy connection between fans and Rush, because I don't have that with really any other band. And it's not strange to grieve someone you didn't know, especially since you have been sitting with them for so long. You know, they've been your companion for so long. And you can't hear somebody's voice every day like Getty's and not at least feel friendly toward them (laughs) just a little bit, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, and in fact, that was one of the, I guess, proudest things that I felt like I did in 2020 was to as we put on these tribute shows, it was so hard on us. I mean, we, we got up on stage the weekend after Neil died. I mean, the show was already scheduled, so we just converted it into a tribute show. And it was so difficult. I mean, I was barely holding it together. And we sang After Image. And I mean, it was this very, very emotional night. But to see how that allowed for the fans to gather together and console each other. And I thought, if I gave nothing else to this world, then I gave that you know, this sense of community and, and allowing that outlet for people. And so many said to us after that that was so important for them to have it happen so quickly after he died because it was like a form of a memorial service. Mm-hmm. And they had that opportunity to, to grieve together. And that's, you're right, that's what makes the Rush community so special. And I'm, I just feel honored to be part of it. 
So my next choice, Vicky, has the same name as a Rush song, Entree New. And I'd like to read just a little bit of it. I'll read the ending. I'm leaving behind the buzzing device to take myself back to a moment in time. In a Belgian cafe where I watched the people, the sky, and life going by. And I wrote a poem just between you and I. Steve, I'm seriously hiring you. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm like, I'm like mesmerized by my own stuff and not because, oh, it's so great, but because of the way you're reading it. (laughs) I know. He should read the emails on the show too. (laughs) So how does this relate, Vicky, to the Rush song Entree New? Yeah. So this originated, I was sitting on a patio back when you could go to restaurants. Imagine that. (laughs) And, uh, I was having lunch and I had taken a break from work and I decided to leave my phone in the car instead of taking it and scrolling on it as I was waiting for the food. And I suddenly, you know, because I just kind of was sitting there and I didn't have anything to look at, I looked up at the sky and I saw this beautiful little puffy cloud and I felt this sort of, I don't know, little connection. It was fun to watch the, the puffy cloud just dancing by and, And so I had this imagery of just you and I are watching each other move and smile above and below for an hour or so. And then, you know, the cloud took its leave, but it it brought me back to all those times when I had traveled before smartphones came along, (laughs) Mm. where that's all I did was people watch because I didn't have the phone to sit there and distract me. And so I'm not sure it's such a direct tie to the song, but it was more, I think, reminded me of Neil's travel writing and how part of why I think he created so many of these amazing essays and things for his books is because he did exactly that. He took those moments to sit and watch people going by. And this was one of his great pleasures in traveling, you know, is is sitting at the diner and just watching people and writing in a journal. And I remembered how I used to do that so often before the smartphone came along. And so that moment in time was a way to reconnect with that feeling of, let me just watch life going by and let it be just between you and I, not with the phone, not with the distraction, but just between me and life. That's a good lesson for sure. We should all put our phones down for for at least a little while and enjoy each other, right? Yeah, absolutely. It does change our brain chemistry, and I think they they affect our creativity. I'm not anti-technology in any way, but I think sometimes we need to put it aside. Oh, absolutely. Um, The next one I'd like to talk about is Alexandria, Louisiana. Now, I'm not sure in the poem, are you going home? Are you going someplace else? Where are you going in, in this poem? Yeah, I'm going home. So uh, I was actually sent for work to Alexandria, Louisiana to facilitate a session on working effectively with uh, India, Indian colleagues at a manufacturing plant. And the town had like one traffic light and I'd never heard of it in my life. But within like a really short time that I was there, maybe a day and a half, I just discovered all this complexity in the culture just by talking to people. And so it it made me want to know more, but I was sitting at the airport feeling sad because I was looking at all the faces and I knew I couldn't, I didn't have time to know them. Mm. I wanted to read from it. Maybe, Steve, maybe you no, should no, read no. from you, it. You read it, Jared. Come on. <laughs> I think you should read it. Um, it begins, sipping a root beer in Alexandria in the tiny airport in the bayou where people dotted around the tables in the terminal carry hope 
disguised as disinterest. That was great, Jer. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I really like that uh, hope disguised as disinterest. Can you tell me a little bit more about that line? Yeah. So it was, as I was sitting at the airport and kind of looking around at the faces of the people, I mean, in the average airport, people's expressions are very neutral. (laughs) They're not super excited unless they're like going to Hawaii or something. But at this tiny little airport, you know, the people were just sort of waiting for their flight and their faces sort of looked like that disinterested, neutral expression. But having just come out of a situation where I had the chance to really speak in depth with people who had grown up there, I saw how much hope uh, they had in their town, their community. And so I, I just wanted to sort of see beyond that disinterested expression and to the hope underneath. And uh, there was a moment at the plant when I was working with them, I was supposed to be teaching them about Indian culture, but this guy named Jerry, not you, Jerry, <laughs> you probably would remember there. that if you did that, <laughs> yeah. kept making all these amazing comments about how working with, uh, you know, his Indian colleagues made him better. And, you know, he was just role modeling this sort of bridge building attitude better than I ever could. And so that made me, again, sad that I, I went to the airport and I had to leave because I wanted to know more about what they believed and who they were. And I'd only just caught a glimpse of it. And that's, and that's the nature of travel. You know, you, you come through and you catch a glimpse, but you know that there's so much more beyond that, but you don't always have the opportunity to go deep. So the next one I picked, Vicki, I like this one because you wrote it when you were 20 years old and uh, it's called A Corny Ode to the Rush Concert. I'll read two stanzas. The lights go down, the arena grows dark. They enter stage left in a hush. The roar of the crowd builds excitement so thick. Ladies and gentlemen, Rush, superconducting a symphony grand, emotional frenzy is ours. Moving pictures, soaring solos, dreamers that steer by the stars. Very well done for a 20-year-old. That's amazing. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I really enjoy playing with rhymes. Uh, One of my trademarks as a poet is to combine rhyme with freeform. So I'll have like a poem where it'll be freeform for several lines, and then all of a sudden two lines will rhyme. Uh, In this particular piece, all of the lines rhyme, which is a lot of fun to work with. And uh, yeah, I was 20, and my, my sister and I, my sister Joanna, we had front row tickets, and we had these shirts t-shirts made uh that said like you know rock and roll in the bones row one or something really obnoxious (laughs) you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. and we just thought we were the greatest things in the world because we had front row but i was in college and i wrote this in the days leading up to the show because i had seen rush a few times before and so i knew what was coming and it was Mm -hmm. almost more about the anticipation of the show than it was about the show itself because that feeling is so sweet. And I think this is one of the things that I miss the most is not just seeing them live, but what it was like to anticipate seeing them live and sharing that with others, you know, sharing that with my sister and some of the other people that I went to the shows with, getting that level of excitement. I mean, we're never going to feel that particular feeling again. And that's one of the most challenging things. And so I wanted this to capture you know, some of that imagery. Now, interestingly, this was written when I was 20, but I edited it a little bit uh, in 2020 for the book. And that was a decision that 
was kind of something I had to really think through because my first book, I didn't edit any of the poems that I wrote when I was younger. I left them completely as they were. So I wrote some when I was like 10 or 11 and I left them as they were. But for this book, I decided to edit them all because I guess I'm just a better writer now. And I felt that if I could maybe tweak and play with some of the words, they could even get more at the original spirit of the poem than they did when I was younger. So this one was a ton of fun to edit and work with, but it's basically intact from when I was 20. And the next one I want to talk about is, is a short one. It's called Blackout. Oh, yeah. Real depressing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'll just do the first, the first uh, sentence, basically. One by one, the stars went out. No morning sound from the crowd. Now, am I correct in that this is at a concert where the lights go out and people aren't mourning, you know, because it's just the end of the concert. But later on, people are mourning because a light has gone out, right? Now, see, this is what I love about these discussions. That is not remotely what I had in mind. But I actually... <laughs> But I actually like that explanation better than the original. <laughs> this is a fantastic example of this dialogic imagination, you know, taking on new life. I, I know, really, I like that explanation way, way more than mine. But um, this, this poem, the original sort of image around it is, picture the song Everyday Glory, the Rush song Everyday Glory. And uh, the line in particular where he says, they can fight about their little girl later. Right now, they don't care at all. So this is meant to capture the hopelessness that children can feel when they, when they feel abandoned or they feel like they don't matter. So, you know, all the, the stars going out, no morning sound from the crowd, a lost corner of sky ignored. That's kind of a child huddling in the corner and just feeling like they don't matter or they don't count. And at first they, they cry out and they try to get somebody to notice them or validate how they feel. But eventually, if those cries go unanswered, they give up. And obviously, it's very sad. <laughs> uh, but I put it in there because I felt it, it kind of conveyed the hopelessness that many are feeling in the pandemic. And again, this book was half written before all of this and half after. And so when I look at it now through the lens of the pandemic, it's like one by one, the stars going out. This is all the things we've lost in the pandemic, all the connections. And that Almost that child in us is crying out a bit, you know, for connection. And we're not able to meet that cry because we're in quarantine. So it, it kind of took on a new life. But now it's taken on another life with your interpretation. So I love that. <laughs> so the last one we want to talk about, Vicki, is called Tiny Volcanoes. I'll read the beginning of it. Tiny volcanoes, a million inside. No more gaze at the moon since Whimsical died. Tiny volcanoes build up and explode while driving, colliding. Keep your eyes on the road. Now, I don't want to guess what this is about, Vicki, <laughs> after Jerry got it wrong. So why don't you tell us the idea behind tiny volcanoes? Yeah, so there's no wrong in, in this process. Mm. But <laughs> so this is about how um, as you get older, some of us have a realization that Maybe we have lost touch a little bit with the creative side of ourselves. And, you know, we're, we're kind of driving a straight line. We've got both hands on the wheel. And like the poem says, until one day like that, you forgot how to feel. And you're just shopping for sofas and, you know, doing the things you need to do. But the poem is basically encouraging people to remember that this, this part of themselves that was very adventurous and creative is still there and your soul is still a playground. 
You know, as the poem says, your soul is a playground, your life is a road. It's oozing and messy, not binary code. Mm. And so you, you, it's time to reconnect with that part of yourself. You know, tell the bank teller to throw up her hands and run off with you to faraway lands. <laughs> and so these tiny volcanoes are the, uh, what's kind of building inside of you, reminding you that you still have all of that. You still have that creativity. You still have that sense of adventure and that sense of play. It's not dead. It just needs to be reawakened like a volcano. And if we allow it, then that can come out again. Uh, really, anytime we want, we just have to give it the opportunity. Yeah, it's very hopeful. Yeah. Because no matter how old you are, you can still do the things you want to do. You know what I mean? You can still live the life you want to live regardless. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I never dreamed at, at age 49, I'd be in a Rush tribute band. <laughs> I mean, this, you would have said that 10 years ago, I, you know, yeah, I but here I am. <laughs> well, speaking of that, why don't you tell us uh, how the spirit of Rush got started? Oh, man, it's such a great story. So when I turned 40, uh, I'd played guitar off and on and through high school and college, and I've always enjoyed singing. And uh, I'm a public speaker for a living, so the idea of being on a stage is pretty natural for me. And uh, when I turned 40, I kind of went through that typical feeling that people get when they turn 40, kind of bummed out. And I remember talking to somebody and I was going through this sort of depressing language of like, yeah, this is the beginning and the end, isn't it? <laughs> hmm. And she said, look, you need to stop that. She said, you need to find a way to celebrate this. So I'm issuing you a challenge. I want you to go out there and plan your 40th birthday and make it big and make it special. And I thought, okay. So I took a piece of paper and I said, what is it that I really would want to do? Like no, no limitations. I said, well, I think I'd like to put on a concert in my house for my friends and family. And I'd like to take some, some more guitar lessons and learn like 12 songs or whatever, and then play for my friends and family. And long short story short, I did that. And one of the songs was resist. And it was just one of the best experiences of my life because performing is so natural for me because I, I'm a very connective person and, and I like to um, say that my mission in life is to lift people up and bring them together. And what does that better than music? So after that little show was over, I thought, well, I don't want to stop now. <laughs> I'm going to keep going. So I signed up for more lessons with this teacher and he said, well, you're getting pretty good. So I think you need to go out and do some open mics. I'm like, okay. I'll do that. And uh, I go to an open mic and there was uh, a guy there who introduced me to this kid named Reese Boyd, who is our guitarist. And at the time he was 13 years old. Wow. <laughs> and he is, when I say a prodigy, I mean that literally. Uh, he could play yes songs at like four years old <laughs> on the wow. guitar. Wow. So uh, yeah, he's truly gifted. And uh, he was there and, you know, the guy who was introducing us said, you guys are both huge Rush fans. You should maybe try to do something together. And I said, well, that sounds great, but who are we going to get to play drums and bass? And Reese says, I got a couple of guys. <laughs> and that was, <laughs> that was Ed and Casey, my now bassist and drummer. And we got together uh, maybe a week or so later to do a jam. And we did Passage to Bangkok, Fly by Night, Limelight, and I want to say one other song, maybe Tom Sawyer. All the easy ones, right? Yeah, all exactly. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and it was just magical. And the audience went berserk. And we kind of looked at each other and said, well, maybe there's something to this thing. And that was seven years ago. Wow. Yeah. And it has been such a gift because just like writing and then sharing, 
It's interesting. I was listening to your episode with Jacob Moon, and he was talking about how when he does Rush covers, he does them, you know, very much his own interpretation, which I loved. And uh, I love his versions of these songs. I think for me, I feel uh, joy in in the accuracy of it. So if I if I can reproduce a Rush song, kind of the way that it sounded or close to it on the record, I look at the audience faces. And it is like the most rewarding thing in the world because they just get this look of so much joy. And now yeah. that Rush is no longer playing for us, uh, so many folks have said to us, we're so glad that we can still have this experience. And, and uh, that's why we call ourselves the spirit of Rush. We're not trying to be, be them, but just bring the spirit of what they gave to younger generations. So kids that have never had the opportunity to see Rush ever can come and have an experience where they gather with the Rush community. And so it has been seven years of nothing but fun. Mm. Uh, although Jacob inspired me, Jacob Moon, and, and I want to try maybe doing a, a cover of, of Mission on acoustic guitar just by myself and to see what that turns out like. Wow, that'd be great. Yeah. Just last night, I was my younger daughter is learning how to play guitar, and I showed her how to play Resist. It was just fun showing her how to play. Because it's because I'm... A very bad guitarist. I just I didn't know you played. <laughs> I play, but I'm a strummer. I can't, you know, I'm I'm not doing licks and things like that. I just have never been able to, to do that kind of stuff. But you know, I just love that song because it's so simple and easy to play. Yeah. Um. So I just showed her, and I don't know. We played it for a little bit. It was kind of cool. That's very cool. And connecting with kids has been one of the uh, one of the most fun parts of. Uh, playing with Spirit of Rush, looking out into the audience and seeing the kids singing every word. I mean, we had this one kid that would just literally drum every beat to every song that mm. we played. He was so such a great air drummer, and it turned out he was a drummer in real life. <laughs> <laughs> but to be able to inspire a new generation is really fantastic. So does your band play songs from Rush's entire catalog, Vicky? Do you go from the first album all the way to the last? Yes and no. Uh, we do not have songs from every album simply because of gear. So we're slowly mm. working our way toward that. But uh, we do have a couple of tunes off Clockwork Angels. And uh, we recently played several off of Power Windows. That was kind of a new foray for us because there's so much going on mm -hmm. <laughs> Power Windows right. equipment wise. But we have some new equipment. So we've been experimenting with some Power Windows songs that went over very well with the fans. And uh, yeah, so I would say... Uh, and we do everything from the first album all the way through. We don't have anything yet off of uh, a couple of the albums, but, you know, th that's in our plans. And luckily, our fans are extremely generous to us when they tip us. And so we, mm -hmm. we often can put that right into the gear fund. So what about COVID, Vicky? I would imagine you guys haven't played in quite a while. How do you feel about the lack of live music in the world right now? Yeah, to be really honest, the first three months of the pandemic were extremely miserable for me because, uh, and I think 90% of that misery was not being able to play with my band. Part of the reason for that is like Rush, we are very close friends and they are like family. And so all of a sudden we went from playing sold out venues in Atlanta with tons of people who were all so excited to hear Rush music and we had this common bond and, you know, it was this incredibly up, uplifting experience to nothing. <laughs> so after three months, I, I wrote to the guys and I said, look, we got to do something. Uh, I want to stay safe. I, I have asthma, so I'm very concerned about being out there. 
So I wasn't willing to go play in like a bar or something, but I said, we got to do something and we can stay safe. So we came up with the idea to hire a professional sound guy and a camera guy. And one of our band members has a huge garage that has two giant bay doors. So basically when you open them, it's kind of like being outside and there's enough room in there to be way more than six feet apart, like 12 or 15 feet apart. So we thought, okay, let's, let's try this and see how it goes and see if we feel safe and and I didn't expect it to really, I just thought, okay, we'll play from the garage, we'll live stream to our Facebook page, and maybe a few people will watch. Uh, the first live stream we did got like 10,000 views. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And we realized we really had something here, that people were starved for music. And just like the book, I suddenly realized I had an opportunity to help people. And so that became another gift for me in the pandemic. We did four of those live streams from our garage. And I can't even tell you how exciting it was to see people tuning in from all over the world. I mean, people would be like, hey, from Brazil, hey, from Australia. We never would have had that opportunity had it not been for these live streams. So while I wouldn't wish the pandemic to happen uh, ever again, and, and if we had to do it all over, I'd say no way. But I took that gift away from it, which is that we now have new fans from all different countries and joined together in the bond of rush. So, and many of them have written to us and said, you know, without you guys and without these live streams, like it really took away some of the darkness for me. I mean, those are some of the messages that we got. And at the end of the year, when I was writing down kind of a reflection on 2020, I thought that's something I can feel really proud of is that we, we helped people and gave them a break from the darkness. Something else you can be proud of is this book, Vicki. Why don't you tell Rush fans where we can get The Winter Garden? Thank you so much, Steve. Uh, so The Winter Garden is available at lulu.com. So that's L-U-L-U.com. And you just do a search on The Winter Garden. Now there is another book called The Winter Garden, but it's about like Norwegian plants and how to tend them. So yeah. <laughs> my, I different think my, <laughs> different subject. So my book comes up first in, in the list and you'll you'll see the cover uh, of the, the icy snow melting into the lush garden. Awesome. Vicki Flyer Hudson, thank you so much for joining us on the Rush Fancast. This was fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. So Jared, just when I thought we've spoken to the most enthusiastic Rush fan on earth, along comes Vicki. I know. She's amazing. She's all in. All in. Yeah. And I, I just love, I love the book of poetry. I love the fact that she's in a Rush cover band. I mean, at 40 to just decide, hey, I'm going to start a Rush cover band and do it. That's amazing. Right. Yeah, that is amazing. Everybody can learn from that, right? doesn't matter what stage you are in life. You can do the things you want to do. Yeah. And it's the type of thing that Neil Peart would have done. Yeah. Just, you know what? This is what I want to do now and I'm going to do it. Right. And then make your dreams happen. Yeah, absolutely. Anything can happen, right? Anything can happen. Anything can happen. You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are at TheRushCast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Vicki Flyer Hudson, TheRushCast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro was Lex. He's fantastic. Jerry, I hope you have a quote for us. Of course I have a quote, Steve. Would I ever let you down? Uh, you just did, and then we had to stop, <laughs> and you had to find a quote. But sure, go ahead. Well, since uh, Mission is Vicky's favorite song, why not uh, go with Mission, right? Love it. Hold your fire. Keep it burning bright. Hold the flame till the dream ignites. A spirit with a vision is a dream with a mission. Excellent. Thanks, Jer. 
All right. See you later, Steve.